Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. Hey everybody, I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market and I finally found the best one for me and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. States have begun relaxing restrictions on a range of outdoor activities as the weather heats up and the COVID case numbers slowly come down in some areas. Regardless of the success of these Phase 1 reopening plans, I know that live concerts where I earn my living and experience some of my greatest joys will be among the last things to come back as we knew them. Though it's exciting to see some bands experimenting with driving concerts and other outside-the-box ideas. So this week, I speak with my good friend Chuck Morse, the legendary promoter and longtime head of AEG Rocky Mountains, which has dominated the Colorado live music scene even as Live Nation and other behemoths have swallowed most of the industry whole. I intended to speak with Chuck about what we should expect for live music in the near future, but that'll have to wait for another episode because Chuck's amazing history in the music business was simply too hard to ignore. He's been right there at the start with some of the most successful bands of the last 50 years, and those stories are worth sharing with you all. In 1971, before the Eagles had even recorded a record, Chuck brought them to play some of their first ever gigs in Aspen and Boulder, starting a decades-long friendship, spanning hundreds of shows together. On U2's first trip to Colorado in 1980, Chuck took them to see Red Rocks, convinced them that soon they'd be big enough to play that legendary venue. Just three years later, Chuck booked them at Red Rocks for a show that became U2's live album and video, Under the Blood Red Sky. And now Chuck's about to fulfill another dream, creating a music business department at Colorado State University. It's simply the next remarkable chapter in the story of one of my favorite characters in all of music. I hope you enjoy him as much as I do. Chuck Morris, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Hi, Bob. This is a pleasure, man. Thank you for inviting me. The pleasure is all mine indeed. And Chuck, the past couple weeks since this new COVID reality, we've been speaking to a lot of journalists. We've spoke to musicians. And really, with musicians, we're getting an idea of how they're dealing with the pandemic, how they're dealing with a world and a life without live music. Chuck, 
you are a music promoter. Not only are you a music promoter, but you may be the music promoter out in Colorado. And uh, you've had a storied career, and we're going to hear all about it today. But first, from a promoter's point of view, how are you guys handling the pandemic? Well, let me tell you for one thing, you know, I'm, I run a um, big chunk of the western part of the U.S. for AEG, which is a worldwide promoting company. We are closed around the world. And what I mean that is we own a ton of buildings from the O2 in London to the O2 in Berlin. I think it has a new name now to the Staples Center in L.A. Live to T-Mobile in Vegas to to Red Rocks. Well, Red Rocks is actually owned by the city, but I do the most shows there. But in Denver, we have the Ogden Theater, Bluebird Theater, Gothic Theater, the new Mission Ballroom, which is amazing. We have Fiddler's Green, the 17,000-seater. We rent, and we're the most renter at Red Rocks, which we do about 125 shows. When we do stadium shows, we, we rent city buildings. We also do Jazz Aspen and Aspen. We do so many things and do shows around the state. Our company does shows around the world, and we have tours around the world. We're in the middle of two little tours right now. One of them is the Rolling Stones, and one of them is Elton John's Farewell Yellow Brick Road. But our company is down, closed, everything, every building, every club, every office, every tour around the world. There's nobody in our offices anywhere, and we're in five continents. We've got three buildings in China, we got buildings in Australia. We have buildings everywhere and, uh, and offices everywhere. And it's very sad. I've never seen anything like this in my 48 years doing this nonsense that I call a job that I love. Are there any plans at this time to reopen? In the United States here, there's been this big movement uh, with states to get open and to try to get some business moving again. Any plans uh, as of today with, with well, you guys? We're having meetings with our whole company. We're having meetings with the mayor of Denver, with the governor of Denver, who's talking to all the people in, in the entertainment side, from sports teams to us, to the zoo, to all sorts of people every week, and trying to figure out how we can go back online, considering the safety and the health of our people. And, you know, it's going to vary in different states and different countries. You know, the only problem is a couple of states may come on, it's going to be hard for a band like the Avid Brothers to go tour when you have, you know, you can play five states. I've come with a, up with some ideas that's no brilliance is have a band like you guys do a residency. It may be a smaller room because Red Rocks is officially closed through Labor Day by the city, maybe closed till the end of the year. We've actually, AEG started the first residency program. We built uh, the Coliseum at Caesars for Celine Dion. Uh, it was the first time a promoter built a place for her Instead of her traveling all the time, she still does tours, which we do national tours with her. She sits in Vegas and they come to her and she's been there, I don't know, eight or nine years and selling out almost every show. And now everybody's doing it. And it's a great idea. And it may be a, a good solution for the beginning of the touring business. And the other thing I, I, I've been thinking about, when I first started in the 70s, and I had a couple of well-known clubs, one called Tulagi's in Boulder, which at Tulagi's I had the first tour of the Doobies, Linda Ronstadt, ZZ Top, uh, the second show of the Eagles. I had blues people like John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, Lightning Hopkins, Mass Lipskin, Big Mama Thornton, Johnny Otis, everybody. In folk, which is my heart, that's where I started. I had Tom Rush, Tim Harden, the Dirt Band, who I later managed for 25 years. 
Leo Kaki, who I later managed for almost 35 years, Phil Oaks, you name it. In jazz, we had Cannibal Adderley and, and Les McCann and Eddie Harris and all these other people. It was a wonderful club. It was actually a couple of feet from the Fox. It was the Fox 25 years earlier in 1970. That's one of the reasons I first hired Don, who's now a partner, and will be taking over as I tell you about my next thing I'm doing, him and Brent Fadrizi. It was like the Fox in the 70s. But in those days, for people that are younger, don't know about it, there was a lot of radio called Freeform Radio. Radio played anything they wanted. There weren't playlists. They would play jazz and folk and rock and pop and everything. They could play anything. In fact, one of the ways I broke bands in the early days, I'll give you a perfect example. There was a band called Bumpy Action from Omaha, Nebraska, who were real big in Nebraska. And they were playing for me. They moved to Boulder and played as our opening act for a summer. And they told me about this young, this was 1970, this young guitar player that they saw in Omaha named Leo Kotke, who I hadn't heard about yet. I ran over to the record store, bought the album, freaked out how great he was, ran down to the station, which was called KRNW, which later, by the way, became KBCO, the big AAA station, played it for the DJ who loved it, and they played the heck out of it for three months. I booked Leo. He came in and sold out the first show because they had played the heck out of it. In fact, I'll tell you one side story to that. I fell in love with Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks. We opened for Dan a few times. He was the greatest. But anyway, he had never played Colorado. I heard his album and loved it. Took it down to the station and they played it like nuts. I booked Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks. And Dan, who was the funniest, nicest, weird sense of humor guy you could ever want to meet in the world, he pulled up with his band. I was outside. It was 3.30 in the afternoon. He was coming for a sound check. And there was a line around the block. And he walks up to me and I said, hey, I'm Chuck Morris. I own this club and I booked you. I'm the biggest fan. And he said, honestly, in a straight face, who am I opening for? What's that line there for? I said, Dan, you're headlining. He said, how did that happen? I said, they're playing the heck out of your record. And that's a lot of ways we broke records in those days. We broke bands in those days. It's a different form. Now radio stations are worth tens of millions of dollars. They have to test records. They got to do all sorts of stuff before they'll add a record. Their playlist has shrunk to 30 records. Freeform radio played everything. And it was great because the college kids who were listening to that, we had the same kids that went and saw Les McCann and Larry Coryell and all these jazz guys would also go see Tom Rush and the Dirt Band and Leo Kaki would also go see the Doobies and Linda Ron and ZZ Top. It was a wonderful time in the music business. And I'm not saying this time isn't great. I hate old promoters who say, oh, I wish it was like the old days. The old days were great, but boy, there were some other things that weren't so great. But one of the things that were great was freeform radio. What was not great in the old days and what is great about today? People got ripped off. Artists, everybody got ripped off. Nobody was watching anything. It was just a mom-pop business where, you know, honestly, there's some old people in our older people, I shouldn't say old because I'm old, you know, now they're more lawyers and accountants and tour managers that protect the artists. I agree with that. And that also protect the customers and even protect the promoters and the buildings. It was crazy where you could do anything. I mean, we used to make offers on toilet paper and call it in. I can honestly say I was a real honest guy, but there were plenty of promoters who weren't in the old days. And now, you know, bands have agencies, 
and, and every uh, an, a band when they get to a, a level have tour accountants and they have agents that follow all the numbers. And I'm not opposed to that. It protects everybody. Bands are making more. We're doing great. It's a better business in a lot of ways. And a lot of the people that have been around like me say, oh, there's more accountants and lawyers than there are promoters. It might be, but it protects everybody and also protects the fans. I think it's a better business in that way. Much better business. All right. So we've already gotten a taste of some of the stories you have and some of the uh, the people you've worked with. Let's just kind of throw out a few. The Eagles. Tell, tell us about the Eagles. Uh, I did the second show they ever played. Uh, they were uh, actually managed them by Giffen Roberts. David Giffen and Elliot Roberts had a management company. And they had a young guy in there named Irving Azoff who joined. They actually, Geffen and Roberts, before Irving joined, put together this band. And it was four guys, Randy Meisner, who had left Poco, Bernie Ledden, who was in the Flying Burrito Brothers that I had at Tulagi's. Of course, Don Henley, who played with Linda Ronstadt. I think his old first band was Long Branch Penny Whistle. Glenn Fry had played with, no, Glenn Fry was in Long Branch Penny Whistle. Uh, and, and some of them had played with Linda. And they called me and said they wanted to rehearse before they made their first album. And they were going to do a week in Aspen. And they wanted to go somewhere, not L.A. or New York, to practice. And they were going in. This was November of, of 1971. And they called me and they said, you have a great club and it's just Boulder, Colorado. So we'd like to do five nights. And I, I'll never forget. It was this early December. And I said, college kids are finishing finals they're not, and they're leaving town. There won't be anybody there. I'll never forget. I can't even remember who called me. It may have been Elliot Roberts. May rest in peace, just died recently. Said, we don't care. We want to practice the songs. We're going in in January, a month and a half later, with our producer who's going to fly in and take notes. We don't care if there are 20 people there, but we've never played live. We're going to do a week in Aspen, and then we want to do a week in Boulder just to practice and see how the songs go over. And I love the pedigree of the four guys. I had played a few of them in their previous bands. I'd done Poco and I'd done the Burritos. I said, yeah, I love it. I figured I'd get them next time. They came in, the four of the guys. We did about 12 people a night, snowing all week, no one in town. And I watched history because I thought they were, they were great. Glenn Johns, who was their producer of the first couple of albums, flew in an English producer, a wonderful guy, Whose son, whose son is a big producer now, Ethan Johns, I think it is. Anyway, Glenn, Glenn came in, a big, big producer, and I stood there with about 12 people, and they, they sang and played and did the, most of the songs from their first album, Peaceful, Easy Feeling, and Take It Easy. And it was like, holy cow, these guys got something. And um, Glenn was taking notes. And at the end of the night, he, we locked the door. My club, I stayed there, and I, and I literally saw history being made. He was talking to the band at the bar about the songs and what he liked and how to make it better. And it really was a historical part of our business. They became the biggest American act ever. And I've done a million shows with them since. But um, they went in, in in London in January and the album came out in June. And that album blew up with those great songs. You know, you didn't make an album and put it out four months later. Today, you have to wait two years with these record companies. It's crazy. But it was really amazing. But I always fight with Henley because every time I see him, I remind him about Tulagi's and he said, boy, we stank. I thought they were great. But, you know, Don is one of those artists that is never happy. Maybe that's why he's so great. Nothing wrong with that. But he always argues with me. We weren't really good, Chuck. Yeah, I thought they were great. 
but you know, I guess his harmonies weren't quite where they got a little bit later because they were a brand new band and, and never played before in front of the public except for the week before in Aspen. But I thought they were great. Bernie, who left the band after the third album, Bernie Ledden, uh, who wanted to play more folk and bluegrass and, and the band wanted to be more rock and roll. He played a lot of banjo, which he did on the first few wow. albums. Bernie's a great multi-instrumentalist. Later, by the way, joined my dirt band when John McEwen quit and played in the dirt band for a couple of years. But uh, I thought he was in some ways amazing. Um, but I'm an old folky. I, I love the whole band. Don't get me wrong, but I love some of Bernie's stuff. One night, the heater went off and they played with their gloves on in front of about nine people. And I'll never forget Bernie playing like banjo and guitar with gloves. I could not believe he could do that. So let me ask you this. A big part of my youth, a period of my youth, was uh, I got a hold of the VHS tape for uh, U2 from Red Rocks. And that was our show. I worked yeah. I watched that thing every day after school for a period of my life. Tell me about your relationship to that band and how that famous concert came out. They had an agent named Frank Barcelona, who was a big agent at Premier Talent, which was the biggest agency in those days. And he had great taste. And he sent me their YouTube album, the first one, see if I liked it. And I loved it. And we booked their date at the Rainbow Music Hall, a club that I had with Barry Fay at, uh, at Fayline. So what, so what year is this? 1982, I believe. And they came out. You know, people forget their first two albums, which were critically acclaimed, did not sell at all. One was called Soldier, I think. But they were already getting unbelievably, they were the darlings of the press, and they had a great word of mouth. They weren't getting any airplay. And they sold out a $2 ticket at the Rainbow. For, we did 1,200 people. I'd never seen them before. And I watched, and I said, oh, my God, this is the next Rolling Stones. And I immediately got friendly with them that night. They were off the next day. And I said, you guys someday are going to uh, play Red Rocks, which I've done now. I've done like 1,600 shows there in my career. And they said, yeah, we heard about that place. We hear it's great. I literally, and the band didn't have five cents to their name then. And I took them in the back of my Jeep with the top off. The guys in the band, the next day they were off. They stayed in Denver an extra day and drove them to Red Rocks. And they were, of course, an empty Red Rocks. And literally said, you guys are so great, someday you're going to play there. And they looked at me like, I don't know about that. Like, this is a big, legendary place. Of course, two years later, we did that famous show that helped break the band. And by the way, I'll brag a little. Rolling Stone had a special edition about 10 years ago called The 50 Greatest Moments in Rock and Roll History. And Under the Blood Red Sky, which was the name of that show, yes. um, they mentioned that the promoter in their first date Actually, Bono or Edge was quoted, and it's in it, in it uh, took us up to Red Rocks to tell us someday we would play. And then, of course, they did the show the next time. And, you know, they weren't that big when they did that show. A little myth. We only drew, drew, uh, drew 6,600 people, which was great first time, but there were a lot of empty seats. Red Rocks holds, what, 9,000? Yeah, the funny part is I've had 20,000 people have told me they went to it, and it was great. I swear to God. But by the way, the next day, they went up to my, my boy Jim Gersio's great recording studio, Caribou Ranch, on top of Boulder, and I went, and they mixed the audio part. Steve Lillywhite was their producer, and he, 
he also mixed the show. And I went up to Caribou the next day and watched them mix the vocal part of that great show. And it really helped break the band. Paul McGinnis, who's a great friend and was manager up till about four years ago when he retired, literally took a second on his house to put the money up. We put up some money, me and Faye and some other friends. You know, it was like a $100,000 shoot. That was an awful lot in those days. Even had a helicopter shooting on top, if you remember. What was it about shooting you 2 and that? Whose idea was that? The band's idea. The band's they idea. They us if we wanted to do it. And of course we said yes. And if we could help raise some money so they could afford to do it. And I'll tell you the funniest story about that. If you remember watching it, you've seen it a lot now. Yes, I have. It was snowing and raining. It was a horrible day. It was the first week of June. What, 84 was it? 83? You know, years in those days are still a little mixed for me. I was a little wilder then. Anyway, Barry and I, Faye, were, we, we booked the second year of the US Festival, Steve Wozniak from Apple's Festival. And we were coming back from the US Festival on a plane. It was the night of the show. We were flying, as you, when you fly, you've flown plenty. When you're flying from the West, you go over the mountains and then into Denver and seeing the snow. And Faye is freaking out. I'm a little nervous because in those days, there was not a top to the stage. And Faye really wanted to maybe move it to, we used to, in those days, you could move shows by like noon or one. The production wasn't that big. We moved it indoors to save the show. And we landed, and, and I'll never forget, we got off the phone, no cells in those days, called on a payphone. We just got off the phone from the US Festival, which people might not remember was a huge festival that the, one of the founders of Apple did, couldn't care how, we just got a fee. He couldn't care how much he paid for bands and did about 40,000 people and lost tens of millions of dollars and couldn't care less, loved music. Anyway, so we landed, Faye gets on the phone, yeah, you know, Paul, backstage, Paul gets on and Barry said, we ought to move it. And, and Paul said, there's no way, we don't care how bad it is, we're gonna play. We put up our money, you put up our money, we'll make it work. And I thought that was that was real smart. And then Bono got on and said the same thing. And of course, Barry caved. And that actually made the show when you see the cold coming out of yes. Bono's mouth. But that actually made the show. It made it so beautiful playing and, and, and all the cold air coming out and Bono going into the audience. And you can see how freezing they were, but still loving it. And it really made that. It had a lot to do with the, with the beauty of that, of that shoot. That's amazing. You told me another story about you two one time. Yeah, probably the next year, I knew they were going to be the next Stones, who, whatever. And I had gotten friendly with the two days at the Rainbow and at Red Rocks, of course. And I was on vacation the next year in London, and I called Paul McGinnis, and they still weren't that. This is before Under the, Blood, Under the Red Blood Sky. And I said, I want to fly to Dublin and take the band out for dinner. And he said, really? Because they were still like, you know, a young, poor Dublin band. And he said, that would be so great, Chuck. So I flew in to Dublin, got to my hotel, taking the band out and Paul. And I already just loved all those guys and, and McGinnis. And I called Paul and Paul said, okay, we picked a restaurant, but David, the edge, just got his first car and he wants to pick you up at the hotel to take you to the restaurant. We'll all be there. <laughs> So he said, here's his home number. So from the hotel, I called David and he was living at home. And his mother answered. And she said, 
nobody calls him David. He's all, all known as the Edge. She said, David, there's an American on the phone with a big. <laughs> and I got, uh, and he got on. He said, Chuck, I can't believe you flew all the way just to take us out for dinner. I said, well, I already love you guys. And I think the photo would be fun. He said, well, I got a brand new car today. And I'm so proud of it. I'm going to pick you up. And I'll meet you outside of the hotel. And I, and I waited outside. And he pulls up in this beat up old TR3 with a broken top. And I, I thought it was a cool car, actually. And jumped in and spent the night with the band and McGinnis having dinner and just having the greatest time. In fact, I did every date until I, I used to run Live Nation, which first was Chuck Morris, Bill Graham. But that's another story. But when I left Live Nation, Live Nation had signed them for a long-term contract. So I stopped promoting them, which really killed me. But, you know, I do plenty of acts. I can't have them all. And, but they were one of my favorite. But I always go to their shows. They always invite me. I go hang out backstage, even though it's a Live Nation show. At the last two times ago, they played Mile High Stadium. And I had dinner with Paul the night before and uh, was in the sound booth with him. Bono was nice enough to say at the encore that, hey, this all got started by Chuck Morris and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, taking him out for dinner was the greatest. That's going to go in my book that I'm going to start writing next year. Well, we're so glad to get an early preview of that book. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Chuck Morris, Bill Graham. T- talk about that that promoting uh, agency that, that you started. I worked with Barry Faye at Faye Line. I was the number two guy there. Uh, we had a big run. We were really a, a monopoly in Denver, and we did shows in other states. My first part of a career, I ran two clubs, one Tulagi's in Boulder and one Ebbets Field in Denver, which was Billboard Club of the Year. Faye was my silent partner. And then Faye Line got so big, he asked me to sell the club and go work at the main company because he was already starting to do the Stones in five markets and, and the Who and, and all sorts of people. And so I sold the club and, and worked for 10 years with Barry. Um, and then I decided to leave and go on my own. I spent the next 10 years mostly managing. I managed a bunch of bands. One of them was uh, the Dirt Band I managed for years. Who I love I moved to Colorado. One of them was Leo Kotke. I'm sure you know both those yes. acts. Leo was a third act to play for me in, in 1971. And I think the Dirt Band was the fifth act. I managed a young bunch of young kids who had dropped out of CU named Big Head Todd and the Monsters. Got them a record deal. Managed them for about 15 years. I managed... Uh, Leftover Salmon, a wonderful band from here. I'm going to stop you here for a second. I want to zoom in on Big Head Todd and Leftover Salmon because I remember those bands well. And I went to see Leftover Salmon when I first moved to North Carolina in 1996. I saw them so many times, 1996, 1997, 1998. They were, they were a staple. They came through North Carolina a lot. So talk about those two bands because... Here you had began your career in one era of music and uh, Big Head Todd and Leftover came to define a new era of music and a new genre of music. So talk about those two bands and what it was like to, to manage them and what was the music climate in the mid to late 90s? Well, the music climate, especially in Colorado, has always been great. I first saw Todd at Herman's Hideaway, a little club in Boulder, in Denver, and they had already on their own managed themselves, uh, dropped out after one year at CU, went to Columbine High School, grew up in Denver, and managed themselves and did a really good job and started, literally took an old truck, which um, they call the Colonel, which ended up having about 400,000 miles on it, started out actually playing fraternity houses in Boulder while they were in high school and then freshmen at CU, 
they just walk in and play from nothing. And they realize they have something when some of these fraternities asked them back for money. And they dropped out of school on their own and got in a truck and started playing you know, a lot of, little bit like you guys first got started and literally traveled around the country making fans, which is, the way, which is something I always recommend to young bands because I think that's the way to do it, especially in today's world. You know, went to Chicago and started playing fraternity houses and then ended up on their own with two independent records doing like a thousand people in Chicago and in Denver and Boulder doing like a thousand people, San Francisco and Minneapolis. Those are their four big markets. And I heard about this band and I hadn't seen them yet. And I went running down and saw them. And I thought they were the greatest. Wanted to manage them and get them a record deal and move them to the next place. Took me about a year to convince them to manage them, by the way. And they were, they did a really good job on their own. They really did. They made, they, for a band doing it all themselves, doing two independent records that sold pretty well, it was pretty amazing. I finally convinced them to manage them, got them a deal at my friend Irving Azoff's label, Giant. We did a first album called Sister Sweetly that sold a million and a half records. But they were part of that whole genre in the early 90s, uh, a blues traveler, a whole bunch of bands like that. Dave Matthews is probably, you know, That's right. samples yeah. from Boulder. The, that kind of music was really exploding in the early 90s. As, as far as uh, leftover salmon, you know, uh, Boulder and Denver have really become the center of that kind of music. You guys have some elements of that, although you're a little bit different in a good way. Uh, but um, a lot of those bands, what do we call it? I, I hate, I, people hate when I say it's uh, hippie bands because they're really not. But they have they have a lot of bluegrass in them, a lot of folk in them, and some rock and roll in them, and it's it's led probably by for at least from Boulder bands, uh, well Yonder Mountain String bands from here, Leftover Salmon, of course uh, String Cheese Incident. Um, there's been a whole ba- bunch of bands that have come out of Boulder. It's sort of become the centerpiece for that stuff. And uh, Leftover are amazing. They've been around now about 25 years. Only band I've ever known that never rehearse. I would go see them every every chance I got. Well, you saw that Mark Van was still alive, the banjo yes. player? Yes, and That was sad. I was managing when he died. Uh, he was a great banjo player. But they keep replacing people. You know, it's really, they're one of the greatest live bands. They really are. They never have playlists. They just wing it, and they're great. And it, barely it, ever rehearse. They rehearse at soundcheck. And they're been, great. Yeah, it's been quite a long time since I've seen them, but I used to see them all the time let's move forward to today and you are about to begin a music business department at colorado state university and four Collins. yeah i've done this now 48 years promoted every band in the world built clubs built the fillmore when i was still at, at chuck morris bill graham here in denver ag you know we took over the ogden the bluebird the gothic the first bank center uh, we have our new club the mission ballroom which is amazing uh, and we do about 125 shows at Red Rocks, Fiddler's Green. And I've been doing this 48 years. And I've always wanted to have a second career before I was too old and I was still healthy teaching in college music business. I've done it about 20 times as a guest speaker, and I've loved it. I actually was a 20-year-old graduate student in Boulder going for a Ph.D., and I was a TA while I was doing it in political science. In political science, I was going to ask. One of the reasons I do so many political benefits, especially John Hickenlooper. In fact, I just had a meeting with John. I, I went to his house and we were 40 feet away with masks on, talking about <laughs> doing some benefits in the fall, probably 
different bands from their houses to raise me. He's running for the Senate. He's been our governor and mayor um, and a music junkie, as you well know, goes to all your shows. He's one of his favorite bands in the world. He's a good man. Plays with some bands. I think he's played with you a few times. Uh, and, and yeah, he has with, played with us, actually. <laughs> Crow on their encores. Yeah. He was governor then and mayor. I don't think too many of those of governor and mayors have played at Red Rocks with famous bands. But um, he's running for the Senate now. Never was in politics, by the way. Was a geologist by trade. Brilliant. Uh, got laid off in 86. Uh, didn't know what to do. And he decided he was going to build a brewery downtown, which was empty then, lower downtown. Raised a lot of money from friends. Built a place called the Wine Coop Brewery, which is still around. Became one of the biggest breweries in America. Built a whole bunch more. Did real estate. Did really well. Always was intrigued by politics, and um, a bunch of his friends nudged him along to say, why don't you run for mayor? And he said, I've never been in politics, which we all thought was a positive, you know, never been in politics. And he won the first race by inches. In fact, I did a benefit, because I knew him forever. Um, I, I did a benefit. I still had the Fillmore then uh, with all the local bands with Big Ed Todd and Leftover, and I brought Leo Kaki in there. And uh, I called it Hickapalooza. And I kept worrying I was going to get a nasty letter from a co you know, uh, from uh, Lollapalooza. But they, they didn't. And we raised a bunch of money and he won. And now he's running for the U.S. Senate in no November, trying to beat so, the Republican incumbent. Do you endorse uh, John Hickenlooper for the Senate in Colorado? What are you kidding? I've endorsed <laughs> everything. I, I, I love the guy. And I think he's done so much good. He's been being credited with the, the, the rebirth of downtown Denver, because the wine coop was the first business down there. This is before the baseball park, before all those businesses in Lodo, and, and the beginning of the growth of downtown. And he's been an amazing mayor and governor, a great friend. I've done benefits, and we'll be doing a big couple of big shows in September for the election in November for the U.S. Senate that he's running for. John Hickenlooper is a good man and a good friend. And, and, uh, he's and a good friend of yours, too. He sure is. Always yeah. ask me that. And you talk to him a lot. I know We that. do. We do. We're in touch. We're good friends. I, I feel like for the purpose of this, I, I may have to invite uh, Mr. Gardner, Senator Gardner, on to respond. But but I have to say uh, that, that John is a great, great man and a good friend. And uh, looking ahead, we will have him on this show this summer. He will be a guest on Politics of Truth here you've been telling us about you know over 40 years of experience in the music business and now this just seems right you are going to pass on your experience to the next generation of music business professionals and so that's that just sounds like an amazing accomplishment so tell us about the program and what you hope to accomplish with it well i'll go back and say i've always wanted to teach music business at a college colorado college I've always wanted to have that as a second career. Frankly, after I did everything I, I wanted to do in the music business and was still young enough and, and healthy enough to do it, I've spoken at about 20 or 25 colleges and I've loved it. And so I started speaking to some Colorado colleges and decided that I would get involved with CSU at Fort Collins. I'm starting a brand new music business department, which I'll be chairman of, which is going to start with one class in September called Introduction to Music Business. I'm getting ready to hire my first teacher under me, who's somebody that has taught music business, but also has been in the music business for a while, which I think is important. Because the music business, as you know, 
it's hard to read a book and understand it. You really got to be in it and feel it because there's a, it's just hard to explain. It's hard to quantify what we all do, what you do, what I do. And so I'm intent upon hiring all the people, all the different teachers. Eventually, by the way, it'll be a minor within three years and a major within five years. And for kids at CSU, they just announced that we've already had 50 kids sign up for September, the first class. Any major, any kid at CSU can take it, doesn't matter what they're majoring in, at any year. So it was one of the nice things I liked and, and leaned me to, to doing it at CSU. And I'm going to have a guest program. Um, I spoke at the University of Montana that has a great program, and they bring in guest speakers to speak to the kids at the school. And I'm going to have a huge guest program. I'm going to bug you guys to come out. And I'm going to have a budget to fly people out to just speak for one class. We'll be there, Chuck. We're there. <laughs> and he would do it and, and not try to. He said, he won't, I will not talk politics. He's not going to be there to get votes. But he is a music junkie, as we both know. He sure is. And I've, yeah. already, I've had a lot of um, stories in Polestar and national magazines and local magazines. I already literally got an email from Lyle Lovett and Michael Fronte saying, well, when, he, when, when can I come out and speak? It's been a great response from all of my friends in the business, both musicians and people in, in the business side wanting to come and speak, which is, I'm, I'm so happy about that. Chuck, I know you and I know you are- Can I say one more thing? Please. I'm gonna flatter you and make you blush. But honestly, when I first saw you guys and all the what, 10 years we've been working, the Avid Brothers Band is just so amazing. Um, maybe because there's a lot of folk roots to it, which I got started with that. But I love you. You guys have had such a wonderful career and are such a great band. And, and I live for the three days that you come every year and play Red Rocks. And you're also the sweetest bunch of guys. Thank you. Really. And I'm going to make you blush, but, and I <laughs> love, love your music. And the main thing I, I thought about it, what I was going to say about you guys, what I think your biggest strength is, is you're one of the few bands that can do a ballad and knock your socks off and then do an up-tempo song and, and, and get the crowd frenzied. And, and that's really hard, you know, to do both. And that's, that's, I think, one of your really, really great, great strengths of the band. And also just everything you do, the playing, the music, the songs, just kill me so. Well, Chuck, everybody asks this question, where's your favorite place to play? What is the best place to play? And I, I don't even think about it. I just say it's Red Rocks. There's theaters all over the country that I'm always uh, so happy to return to and feel very blessed to walk on every stage, any night, every stage. I, I'm definitely, um, you know, I'm very appreciative and, and I have a lot of gratitude for what uh, I've been blessed to be able to do in my life. But Red Rocks hands down and it's not just the physical beauty of the space that you're in it is the kindness and just love and the family-like atmosphere that we experience from you and don and everyone out there in colorado just so many great friends it's such a special place chuck let's call this the first visit to politics of truth and let's have you back on in a couple months and uh, we can just uh, continue to, to enjoy the, the fruits of, of your life, uh, your storied career. Oh, man, this is my pleasure, Bob. My pleasure. Chuck, thank you so much.
Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media. Produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton. Artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit osirispod.com.